0: Hello and welcome to Book to Book, a literary podcast brought to you by Faber and Faber Publishers. My name's George Miller, and I was recently in Somerset to talk to natural history writer Stephen Moss about his new book, Mrs Moreau's Warbler, How Birds Got Their Names. In this podcast, we also ask our guests to talk about a book that inspired them, perhaps directly, perhaps obliquely. And as you'll hear, in Stephen's case, he's chosen a publication that fired his imagination and kindled his interest in birds as a boy, even if it's not exactly a book. Stephen Moss is an author, journalist and TV producer. He spent almost three decades with the BBC's Natural History Unit in Bristol, where his credits included Spring Watch, The Nature of Britain and Birds Britannia. My first love has always been the nature of Britain, Stephen has said. A fact reflected in his output as an author too, where he's written on many different aspects of British ornithology. And in his new book, Mrs Moreau's Warbler, he takes the reader on a journey through British bird names and shows how the names of humble garden birds and rare visitors alike bear the imprint of major events in our language, history and culture. Stephen says his mother was the key person who encouraged his twin loves of birds and language. I began our conversation by asking him to
1: tell me more. My mother was a single parent, so she devoted a lot of time to me back in the 60s and 70s when I grew up. And she wasn't interested in birds at all, but she encouraged my interest and took me all over the place and ferried me around before I could cycle or or drive myself. And she also, even though she left school at 15, had a real love of books and of reading and encouraged me from a very, very early age And really the two passions of books, language and birds come together in this book.
0: Tell tell me, going back to your childhood, what age were you when you first registered some interest in in birds?
1: I actually can't remember not being interested in birds because it happened when I was about three years old. My mother took me down to the river Thames at Leylam near West London to feed the ducks And I asked her what those funny black ducks were. And she said, I don't know, dear, but we've got a bird book at home. And that was the Observer's Book of Birds, which ages me. And I looked them up and, of course, they were coots. Fortunately, coots are black and white, like all the illustrations in the Observer's Book, most of them. Uh, And so I don't remember not having that passion. And we used to go on family holidays around southern England, Devon, Hampshire, Dorset and watch birds and later on we started going to specific places to watch birds um, both locally and elsewhere in Britain.
0: So when the Birds of the World part work started to appear you were a you were a dead set for for that.
1: Yes I think I must have been about nine years old And, and there was a real trend for part works back in the late 60s and early 70s and this part work came out I think it was 108 parts nine volumes and my mother subscribed to it and every week we'd get a copy and one week I was looking through it and they had a list of all the birds in the world for each family in it and I looked through this and I was very interested in warblers I hadn't really seen any warblers at this point I was 10 years old by then by the time this came out and they were sort of mysterious, exciting birds. And I looked down the sort of familiar black cat, white throat, reed warbler, sedge warbler, willow warbler, chiff and got to Mrs. Moreau's warbler. And I was really intrigued by that. And that stayed with me all these years. And it was only relatively recently when I decided to write the book on bird names. And I thought that would make a good title. Let's find out a bit more about Mrs. Moreau. And I did.
0: We we won't spoil it for readers by saying what you found out, but it's it's it, it sort of bookends the the whole story, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I can hint a few things. I found a lot about Winnie Moreau. Winifred Moreau was married to Reg, who was a very eminent ornithologist. But she wasn't some sort of you know passive partner. She did a lot of very very good work in her own right, and I think nowadays. She would probably have co-written books with him and, and been been recognized. But in those days, you know, she was a mother and a wife and, and this is back in the thirties, twenties, thirties, nineteen forties. So but they lived in Africa and they discovered this bird and Reg named this bird after her. And and I always loved this because a friend of mine said when he saw a photo of Rage Murray, he said, gosh, he looks like Captain Mannering from Dad's Army. And men like that were quite sort of buttoned up. But turned out Reg wasn't really like that at all. He, he was quite a character, as was she. She used to keep baby birds that she was trying to raise from if the parents had been killed in her bra. And they used to emerge at dinner parties and slightly shock local dignitaries. So she was quite a character.
0: That kind of anecdote didn't feature in Birds of the World, did it?
1: There was nothing in Birds of the World. They, there was literally nothing about this bird apart from its name. It was Mrs. Marose Warbler, something like Skeptomagta, I can't pronounce it, Winifred, I. So I thought, oh, she's probably called Winifred. I didn't really think of it again for probably another 40 years. So,
0: so the weekly arrival of this part was a, was a highlight in your household. You would pour over it as soon as it came in.
1: Yes. I mean, bear in mind, this is nine, late 60s, early 70s. You know, we, we were very bored a lot of the time. The idea of a, a magazine devoted entirely to the world's birds popping through the letterbox and being able to read it was literally the highlight of my week, apart from West Ham occasionally winning a football match. You know, it was so different from nowadays. Now, one of the problems with getting children interested in nature is, of course, they've got so many other wonderful things they can get interested in and so many other distractions. We didn't really have that. It was really quite dull being, you know, an only child in suburban West London in around 1970s. And <laughs> so.
0: um, when I was reading your book, I was able to go on YouTube. When I came to a bird and you were writing about its call or something, able to go on YouTube, see video of it, hear its call.
1: And to you in the 1970s, that would, that would have been unimaginable. It was completely unimaginable. What, what I used to do, my mother would take me up to the Natural History Museum. So at least I could see the stuffed and mounted skins of birds. You know, I remember seeing my first spoonbill in the Natural History Museum and thinking how small it looked. And I thought I would never see a live spoonbill, a very rare visitor to Britain. And of course, eventually I did. But, you know, when again, at that age, you'd read these about these birds around the world and you never imagine you could ever possibly see them for yourselves. And, and that's been one of the joys of my life, of being able to, you know, gradually travel the world, both with my work and... and as a TV producer and and as a writer and just for what my wife calls jollies and see a lot of these really exciting birds that I read about in those pages so long ago.
0: Now, before we leave Birds of the World, you probably didn't know it then, but the man who was the general editor was quite an important figure in the history of British
1: ornithology, wasn't he? Yes, John Gooders was an extraordinary man. To my regret, I never met him. I saw him at Birdfair once. I know his widow. He died relatively young, I think in his late 60s or early 70s, a few years ago. Um, He was an enormous influence on me, not just through editing Birds of the World, but he also wrote a guide, which was the sort of bird equivalent of the Good Food Guide called Where to Watch Birds. And that came out when I was seven, eight years old. And that became our Bible. My friend Daniel and I would scrutinise what John Good has said about these various places, Every, everywhere from Wimbledon Common to um, Minsmere, you know, very famous bird reserves, you know, the Scottish islands, to, to little local ones. And I did actually write to him and said, why haven't you got Bushy Park in your book? Because that was where where my friend Daniel lived and we'd go out there and watch birds. And he did write back, bless him, and and said, look, I'm I'm sorry I couldn't fit everywhere in, but maybe if we do another edition, but I'd probably do Richmond Park because it's bigger, which was a very good answer. Very kind of him to think of writing back. Um, But he was an enormously influential figure. He changed his life. He wrote that book. And of course, in those days, he wrote a book like Where to Watch Birds. It became a bestseller. He gave up teaching and spent the rest of his life writing books on birds, which isn't a bad deal, is it? And I suppose...
0: He's just one in a long line of fascinating characters who who populate your book, who have become obsessed with birds. I think it's probably not too strong to to use that word and have contributed to the knowledge and the exploration
1: of the, the world of birds. Yes. I mean, the most interesting characters are all long dead now because they're men. Mostly, and a few women, nearly all of them, ranging from the mid 18th to the late 19th century, whose names appear in bird names. So in Britain, people know about Montague's Harrier, Buick's Swan, named after not after the American car, named after Thomas Buick, the engraver who produced really the first cheap, popular book on birds in in around 1800, Um, Leech's Storm Petrel, Leech's Petrel, Lady Amherst's Pheasant. So there are quite a lot of birds, and an awful lot around the world, but quite a lot even on the official British list, named after people. It was a real trend. It's called eponymous bird names.
0: So, as well as being interested in birds as a as a boy, as you mentioned, you were also interested in language and bird names must have been a particular thing that captivated you linguistically as well as as well as thinking about the actual birds they're, because there's some fantastic names. You must have every every week been, been getting a new roster of amazing, colourful, bizarre
1: names from around the world. I did. I was interested in names, but I think, funnily enough, at that stage, we were trying... Um, birds, as you know, have what are often called Latin names, but they're actually scientific names. Some of them are Greek of origin. And my, my dear friend Daniel, who I've mentioned, Daniel was a, a is now a, a very eminent professor of biology. And he was my birding mate for the first 25 years. 30 years of my life, really. I didn't know anyone else. I met him at school when we were 11. And we found this mutual interest. And we would sit in the playground. This does sound very, very sad. But we would sit in the playground and test each other on the scientific names of birds. So I would say Anthus pretensis. And he would say Meadow Pipit, And then he would say Cocothraustis, Cocothraustis, which sounds slightly dubious. Uh, And I'd say Hawfinch, which also sounds slightly dubious. And we would do this. And even today, I know most of the Latin names. But yes, bird names interested me. Language interested me. I, I did at English A-level. I, I edited the school magazine. I got very lucky to win a place at Cambridge to, to read English. I edited the student newspaper there. So I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a journalist in some form. I don't think at that stage I ever thought you could write a whole book on bird names
0: but you were already enterprising enough to write a whole dissertation on on the nature poet John Clare and were, were birds a major
1: feature of that dissertation absolutely yeah in my in my second year at university at cambridge i was struggling to find something to write a dissertation about which you had to do and i suddenly thought what about John Clare? Didn't he write some bird poems? He wasn't anything like as well known as he is now. He's now the the sort of god of of nature writers and a brilliant writer and a fascinating man. And I discovered these wonderful bird poems, very simple, very deceptively simple, actually, use of language as he did. And I realised as I was discussing it with my supervisor, that these poems sort of mimicked the bird's behaviour. So I ended up writing a dissertation on that, And in the book, I write a lot about Clare. It would it, be very easy to write an entire book about Clare's bird names, because Clare, in the early 18th century, being still a very rural man, still used all the folk names. In his poetry, you come across all sorts of odd names that you have to then race to the reference book to look up. Because by then most bird names were becoming fixed. People were writing bird books. They needed to have the same name. It didn't work if you had a different name in Devon and a different name in Northamptonshire where Clare was and a different one in Scotland because your book might sell all over Britain. So these ornithologists were starting to classify and simplify and I suppose make these names official. Most common bird names are folk names. They, they, names like Chiff Chaff or Black Cap or White Throat were, were not created by ornithologists. But names like red breasted Maganza or White-Fronted Goose were, and we and Montague's Harrier, you know, we know this, we know when they were coined, again, mostly in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, you know, Clare was one of the last people who, certainly last writers, who rigorously stuck to the names he knew and loved.
0: You mentioned geese there. And one of the, one of the most fascinating things that I took away from your book was the antiquity of the word goose. You say it's, it's probable. It's, it's the oldest
1: surviving bird name in the language. Tell, tell me how we know that. Well, it's about linguistic detective work. And a good example is if you take bird names that are clearly very ancient, swallow, swan, goose... Raven. They're often very hard to work out where they come from. Things like raven are almost well, it's certainly onomatopoeic, it comes from the sound. Something like goose, we have no idea where it comes from. It may be some corruption of the sound. But the way you do this is you start going back and you 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 first find out if a name is the same in English and German and Dutch. And if it is, that means it goes back to Anglo-Saxon. If it's the same in the Scandinavian languages, it has to go back earlier than that, because by then those languages had split off. So something like swallow or swan are more or less the same. It's a different version, it's Schwan or swan or schwan, but it's similar, the same with raven and same with many of these names. And goose is one of the ones that scholars have looked at and said it almost certainly goes back to what we call Proto-Indo-European which is thousands of years before the birth of Christ. So this is, this is a really, you know, really early language. And again, it's because different forms of goose are found in virtually all Europe's languages.
0: And a good many, I mean, coming, coming further forward in time, but still a long time ago, a good many of everyday bird names
1: predate the Norman Conquest. They're
0: found in Anglo-Saxon poetry.
1: Yes, what's so interesting about the Anglo-Saxon bird names is so many of them, got transmuted by the Norman Conquest. Norman Conquest was obviously this extraordinary event in the history of Britain but most especially in the history of our language. Had it not happened we would be speaking a a very similar language to German and Scandinavian languages. Anglo-Saxon was very clearly related to those and bird names were no exception. What then happened was Anglo-Saxon disappeared very soon after the Norman Conquest and French, Norman French came in and Middle English form, very different language. We can read Middle English. If you read Chaucer out loud, you can sort of understand it. You can't understand Anglo-Saxon unless you're a scholar. And what happened was that quite a lot of bird names from Anglo-Saxon no longer made sense in the New English. So a good example is Red Start. Now, Red makes sense. Yes, it means red. Start. Why start? Do Red Starts jump about a lot? They, of course they don't. It's an Anglo-Saxon was stéote, and it means tail, because red starts have a red tail. But the name red stéote, red stort, or whatever it was, made no sense, whereas red Start did. So people, you know, you can imagine how names transmute. This happens a lot. Dandelion was came up on a quiz the other day, because dandelion is from the French, bon de lion, lion's tooth, the shape of the leaves. Dandelion makes no Sense it's not a you know, but it's a corruption, and there's lots of words in English like that. And names are particularly good at this. So we have yellow hammer for what should be called yellow bunting, because hammer is the German word for bunting. And most famously, and this all, all often appears in in bird quizzes and things, wheat ear nothing to do with ears of wheat. It basically is Anglo-Saxon for white ass because it has a white rump.
0: But because people had, in, in subsequent centuries, lost touch with that original etymology, they tried to kind of force it into a meaning. So you, so you quote some some later writers. I can't remember, but maybe seventeenth or eighteenth century, trying to give an explanation of wheat and ear, and, and relating it to to the crop and the ears of the ears of um, wheat. That's
1: right. I mean, even as a child, I think I thought, oh well, wheat ears—they they live in grassy fields. Well, that's wheat, isn't it? Well, of course, it's not. <laughs> you know, they don't live in arable fields. So, yes, a, a poet in the 16th century wrote about, you know, it's because they 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 live in, um, feed on ears of wheat. No, they don't. They feed on insects and, and possibly some seeds. But, you know, they're not, they don't feed in wheat fields. And that's a classic example. And there are many, many more. The other ones that get lost, the meaning gets lost, but it's probably easier to find out. We have a lot of bird names. Uh, the first chapter of the book is all about sound. And there's a lot of obvious bird names named after sound, of which the most famous by far is the cuckoo, because you just go cuckoo and that's it. Chiff is another one in my garden at the moment, singing outside where we are. Um, but lots of others are raven, rook, crow. My friend Dominic Cousins says, how do you tell a rook from a crow? Well, a rook sounds like it's a crow has been on an anger management course, which is a lovely line, which I quote in the book. Um, and, you know, rock. Crow, Crow, Raven, Raven, Raven. It's deeper than that. You know, they make sense as onomatopoeic names, but lots of others have become lost. So, a lot of names that we're not quite sure where they come from, like Kite, um, quite a few, Smew, uh, almost certainly originally onomatopoeic, and some that we have completely lost. Finch is a good one. It's from Chaffinches go pink, pink, and that became Fink, and then that became Finch. So there's another example where it's been lost in language, but by detective work, we can find this out. And a lot of the book is about this. It's an, you know, I've tried to get away from the sort of list of bird names. It's not a dictionary. It's a narrative story of the English language, of our history, of our culture, of men and women who, who sometimes made mistakes, but work really hard to try to get bird names to work. And, you know, it is an extraordinary story.
0: And you've been talking about the sounds giving rise to names, which is quite a useful reminder that there was an era before digital cameras and telephoto lenses where, you know, retiring birds, um, the, the the only way that we would perceive them would have been through the sound, or the main way would have been through their sound.
1: Absolutely. I mean, most bird names, w- most common bird names, did were named well before optical age, you know, back in the either Anglo-Saxon times or the Middle Ages. And so it is very obvious field marks give names like white throat and black cap because they're the two warblers that stand out visually all other warblers are brown green and look very similar um the only other one with a very common folk name which has become its name is chiffchaff because of its sound um but all other warblers many of which are very common like willow warbler and reed warbler would have been named later by ornithologists they wouldn't really have a Name. Reed Sparrow was an old folk name for Reed Warbler, I suppose, but mostly they weren't really noticed. But sound was the big thing. You know, um, sound is very distinctive and our ancestors would have needed to know certain sounds or certain birds, either by sound or vision, because they needed to know, you know, what was good to eat, what might, you know which bird came back at the right time to plant crops, those sort of things. That's why we have a lot of folklore around birds, because they were actually very useful to people. Which birds appear when there's going to be bad weather? And so they needed to name them. And I think we have an urge to name. I mean, there's a wonderful quote I use at the very beginning of the book, which is from the very opening book of the Bible, from Genesis. And and very early on in that book, God creates Adam. And what does Adam do? He gives names to all the fowls of the air. It's actually the first thing he does. When do
0: people start to take birds seriously as something to study and to write about and to begin to get serious about classifying them?
1: Ornithology began pretty clearly around the 16th century. So there were men like William Turner in the 16th century, John Ray and Francis Willoughby in the 17th century, and these were pioneering what you would today call naturalists, which is a word that, again, derives from around this period. And they had a curiosity about the natural world. For 1500 years, everything written about the natural world came from Aristotle, Pliny and a few other Greek and Roman writers. And although Aristotle and Pliny got a lot of things right, they got an awful lot of things wrong. Aristotle thought that the robin in winter turned into the red start in summer because they're both red. It's not a a ludicrous idea. Birds do look different from winter to summer. They're both in the same family. So we had these, you know, these strange beliefs and people like Turner and Ray and Willoughby and then later on in the eighteenth 19th century, George Montague and William McGillivray and William Yarrell spent a lot of time trying to clear up the sort of mess of the past, the ignorance about birds, where folk stories got repeated. Some of them were true, but some of them were complete nonsense, and yet they they just were repeated from one book to another. So it was really part of the whole pre-enlightenment Renaissance and then the Enlightenment in the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, and and it really then reached its its sort of height with the famous Gilbert White, the the rector of the village of Selborne in Hampshire, and Gilbert White would wander around his village and he would write about birds. From a scientific point of view, but really much in the way I would write now in a sort of bird diary, a sort of curious point of view. I wonder why there's so many of these this year, or I notice the swallows are late. And he really set up the notion, I called him in a book I wrote many years ago, the first bird watcher, because he really set up the notion you could watch and enjoy birds and the rest of nature more or less purely for pleasure. And one of the
0: things that those publications from the 16th century and onwards, particularly in the 18th, 19th century, were doing was trying to fix the names, because from your book, it's clear that some of the names are all over the place.
1: Yes, we had names that were different names for the same species, lots of those, and fewer, but still importantly, the same names for different species. And it was people like Thomas Pennant, who actually is Gilbert White's correspondent in the Natural History of Selborne, far less well-known now, but bet- much better known than Gilbert White in the 1770s, 1780s, when he wrote an epic work called British Zoology. And Pennant gave a lot of names to birds, things like red-throated, black-throated divers, you know, more obscure birds, not rare, but scarce visitors, were ones that wouldn't have had folk names or may have just been called diver. And so he created these names and he 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 both confirmed some folk names and he created new ones you know so men like that we have a lot you know we owe a lot to because they they really formalized british ornithology. but they had a problem and this problem was that bird names are not logical and so there was a man called william mcgillivray who's one of my favorite heroes of this book even though he was a, a deeply curmudgeonly probably obsessive compulsive scott And he's not a man you warm to, but he tried very hard to formalise bird names into a logical approach. In the classic way, he said, OK, we can't have black cap and white throat. They're warblers. Let's call them black capped warbler and white throated warbler. It makes perfect sense. No one was interested. And people have tried this over the years. It was tried 20 years ago. And we don't like it. We like calling a bird what we've always called it, even if it's wrong.
0: You've talked um, a number of times about the, the eponyms, these um, birds which are named after individuals. And as I was reading the book, I had rather mixed feelings about this, you know, this application of an individual's name, sometimes on purely contingent reasons to, to a bird. And then when you get towards the end of the book, you talk about the auctioning of a particular bird's name. And that made me feel even more uneasy. And I know there's a theory that in order to value nature, we have to put a price on it. And I know that's a contested theory, but what what, what do you feel about, not, not just the auctioning, but the whole idea that a natural species gets a name of a, an Englishman with a shotgun and, you know, who, who's a corresponding member of some scientific body?
1: Yeah, I think there are some clearly very deserving members of the eponymous bird names. Gilbert White, White's thrush, even though he never saw the bird. McGillivray has a warbler named after him in the United States, which he never saw. But they did at least you know, deserve it. Montague is my favourite of all of them. You know, the man who had a midlife crisis, left his wife, fell out with his family, got court-martialed out of the army and thought, what can I do now? I know I'll go down to the West Country with my mistress and write books on birds. Well, that's pretty good, I think. Um, and I love Montague. Montague's Harry is a wonderful bird and I would hate that to be renamed. The sponsorship you talk about, it's only happened a few times. Um, it happened with a bird called the Oh, I couldn't remember what it was. A vireo, anyway, found in South America, possibly the Choco vireo, I think. And an all well, a bird watcher, really, a, what they call a world lister called Bernard Masters, offered $75,000 to have his name commemorated in the scientific name. So, vireo mastery rather than Masters vireo. And I think that's okay. The question next is, could you get, as I, you know, I, I think I touch on this in the book, could, you know, could we have McDonald's Warbler sponsored by the major burger chain, you know, or Trump's Turico or something, you know. The Disney Penguin, I can imagine that as a thing. Yeah, the Disney Pelican or Disney Penguin, exactly. Um... Now, if they gave a million dollars to conservation, maybe it would be worth it. I, I, I think I would be uneasy. I think giving, I think having a la- the scientific name named after them, which has happened a lot, you know, David Attenborough's got lots of very strange things, obscure slime molds and lichens. I think named after him, you know, and he at least deserves it. But I think that's okay. I think I'd be unsure about modern eponyms. There are a very few. There's a couple of few, three or four living people who have birds named after them because they discovered them. I think if you discover them, that's fine. So just to conclude,
0: if you went back today to your part work, the world of birds, has that world completely changed? Is, is a lot of what's in there being changed out of recognition?
1: There's certainly an awful lot more species than there were in 1970. So at least 2,000 more species have been either discovered or split or described. So that's a big difference. Uh, A lot of the birds, some of the birds in in Birds of the World are now extinct, of course that were very rare at the time slenderbill curlew eskimo curlew backman's warbler none in britain thank goodness yet the only bird that we've ever had go extinct is the great auk but there will be some in the next few years a lot of these birds have become much less common or in some cases much commoner than they were then so birds are an ever changing canvas and of course, as birds get commoner, people notice them and get to know their names. Lots of people now live around Reading or along the M forty corridor know about kites. They probably, if you said red kite to them thirty years ago, they would have thought you meant the toy. Probably had never even heard of this bird. Now they have. So I think the world has changed considerably. Bird names are both a constant and a subtly shifting aspect of our world. But for me, what they tell us is they tell us about ourselves. That's what Mrs Moreau's Warbler is really about. It's about our history, our culture. It's about occasional wonderful moments of discovery and occasional rather uh, moments you'd rather sweep under the carpet of people backstabbing each other and, and naming something that they shouldn't do because someone else had already named it. You know, there's some good stories here.
0: I was talking to Stephen Moss about his new book, Mrs Moreau's Warbler, How Birds Got Their Names, which is available now in hardback. For more information, visit faber.co.uk. And until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.